The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, October 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. As you are getting settled, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Obviously, 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, what is arguably, I will say at least, or I'll make the argument, arguably the most famous story in the Bible. Um, if not the most famous, one of the most famous. Um, and I say that because I honestly think if you were to ask people anywhere on the earth, if you were to ask people about the story of David and Goliath, they could give you some kind of loose background, loose structure, loose idea, story about the underdog defeating the giant, the story of great courage against uh, undefeatable odds. They could give you some background about it, but I, I bet they could give you more about David and Goliath than they could about Jesus's life, ministry, death, or resurrection. It's probably the most well-known story in the Bible, if not the most well-known uh, it's an unforgettable story. It is rich with imagery. It's rich with illusion. There's a, so much being said by the writer that he intends for the audience to hear when he makes certain statements. There are so many illusions. There's so much going on. It, it, it's 54 verses in the story, but it's actually a, a very sparse amount of words for all that's being said. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to walk through the whole thing. Take a deep breath. We're going to go through the whole thing. I want us to read it. I want us to hear it. I want you to see it and by God's grace even feel it. And as we do, I want you to be asking yourself that maybe in your familiarity with the story, so familiar with the story, maybe you haven't actually even read the story. You're just familiar with the story. Or maybe you have read the story, you've heard it so many times in your life that in our familiarity with the story and in our urgency to distill the story down into some truism or moralism, maybe we've undersold the majesty of the story and the glory of the story. Did the underdog defeat the giant? Yes. Was there a, an epic display of courage in the moment? Yes. But why? And is the courage we see on display in the story, is it derivative of something even greater? Does it come from something even more majestic? These are the questions I want us to consider as we go through the story this morning that we're all so so very familiar with. So as we begin, let me pray for us, and then we're going to have to trust God with our clock. God, I thank you this morning for our time together. Um, I ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do this morning, that you would take what is so familiar to us and, and make it new to our ears and new to our hearts. God, would your Holy Spirit work through your word this morning to help us to see again or see anew your majesty, your glory, your grace, your power, most clearly as you have demonstrated it to us in the person of your Son. Lord, help us this morning in our time together. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' good name. Amen. 1 Samuel 17 takes us to the story of David and Goliath. And 
This morning, I want us to soak in as much of its literary beauty as our time allows us. So I want to waste no more time getting to it. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. The Philistines have gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah. And they are encamped between Soka and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Now, here's a bit of the setting you've got to capture. Notice that the writer is saying something really important here. He says, the Philistines have gathered. They're very active. They're, they're doing the work involved with some kind of level of intent. They're, they're busy at this work. And they've gathered deep into Israelite territory. They are further into Israelite territory than they've ever been before. And if you've been with us through the story, you also know as you hear this beginning, this isn't the first time we've heard about the Philistines. We remember we heard about the Philistines for the first time back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Philistines drew up against the Israelites. They went to battle against the armies of Israel and they conquered the armies of Israel. And not only did they conquer the armies of Israel, but they took captive the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we're going to get back to that in just a little bit. God did go to battle before his people and defeat the Philistines. The covenant was returned back to Israel, but the Philistines still persisted as tormentors of God's people in the land. They're probably a large reason why God's people demanded from God a king like the nation's. They wanted something similar and akin to what they saw in the Philistines that would somehow communicate to them in their own mind, and their own heart, a sense of protection and stability. In fact, when God allowed them to have a king of their own choosing in Saul, God said in 1 Samuel chapter 9, he will save my people from the hand of the Philistines. So the Philistines aren't new to the story, but they're still here. Here they are, and they are gathering their armies for battle. Now, verse 2, Saul and the men of Israel, notice this, it's passive, were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. The Philistines are active in this whole thing, intentional. The writer wants to see that the, the Israelites are taking a more passive approach to this scenario. And so in your mind, if you can see the story, and I want you to try to see it as much as you can, I want to try to expose as much of what's here to us this morning. So if you have to close your eyes to see it, I do that all the time when I listen to the Bible. I'll put it on audio, close my eyes and listen and try to see it. You've got these two armies lined up against each other on opposing mountains with a valley between them, a literal valley of death in, in just a little bit. And in verse 4, there, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Scholars say that Goliath was probably somewhere around nine feet, six inches tall. And not a, a lanky NBA nine-footer. You're going to see in just a minute, this, this man had some mass about him. And they describe him here very clearly as a champion, Champion literally means the man between two lines. He's the one who stands between two opposing lines. He's the decisive one. We'll see in just a minute the embodiment of, of the ideal of the Philistine here. This is how they refer to him. Massive, hulking man. 
he strolls out from the encampment into the valley. And you kind of have to imagine the swagger he has as he goes out to do this. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. And he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Again, historians, scholars trying to do the work for us tell us that this is probably somewhere in the ballpark of 125 pounds. So a coat of mail, you're probably picturing like a Reformation knight, a Renaissance knight with their their coats of mail that would cover their, their chest, their armor. Imagine that, 125 pounds. This was no tall, lanky dude. He had bronze armor on his legs, and that wasn't light. A javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Again, scholars doing the math tell us that that spear, the tip of the spear, just the pointed spear head, weighed somewhere between 15 and 25 pounds. It was affixed to a bronze shaft, like a weaver's beam. So for those of you that are trying to see it in your head, trying to capture the the weight of this whole thing, if you've been to the gym, just imagine taking a 45-pound barbell, that being the the spear that you just carried around, that you wheeled it around. You're kind of getting in the ballpark of what's going on right here. He also had a shield-bearer who went before him. Now, there's a lot of attention paid to his armor, paid to his bearing, paid to what you see here. And on one hand, that's meant to help you see just how impressive of a guy he really is. By all human standards, you are meant to see Goliath as an impenetrable force, literally head to toe covered in metal, nine feet six inches tall, standing with all the confidence in the world, a one-man wrecking crew. If you need help picturing him in your mind, picture Thanos. That's who we're talking about right here. Someone who would incite fear, demoralizing to their opponents just in their appearance. All this detail is meant to help you see it, but there's more to the detail. So so just make a note right here and go, we're going to come back to the detail because the detail plays a role in unfolding the story later on. So just make a note, all right? Verse 8, it says, he stood, he walks out and he stands and he shouts to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Literally, he says, am I not the Philistine? That's what it says in Hebrew. Am I not the Philistine? Do I not embody all of the Philistine ideal? Am I not him? Am I not the one? And you, you're just slaves of Saul. You don't want any part of this. This is what he's saying. Stands there and begins to speak and says, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Now again, there's so much here. You already know in the story. Israel has chosen a man for themselves. That's been the whole theme. Israel chose a man for themselves who would be their king, who would be their representative. He's Saul. 
He is the giant amongst the men of Israel, head and shoulders above everyone else in the land, most handsome, most impressive. He's the one of their choosing. So we know they have already chosen someone to go before them. And Goliath says, go ahead and choose yourself a man and let him come. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy. I scorn the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. This is the most massive and aggressive call out I have ever heard. Let the Israelite, the one you choose, who embodies for you all that is ideal to you, let him come out to me. And we know they've already chosen that man, but he wants nothing to do with the Philistine. He's being challenged to come out, winner take all, in an act of what's known as representative warfare. See, what would happen is a representative of each army, of each nation, would step out and, and they would do battle in this valley. And whatever happened to the representative happened to the nation. So the one who was representing their people, Goliath for the Philistine, whoever comes out to fight him for the Israelites, they are not fighting for their nation, they're fighting as their nation so that whatever happens to them happens to the nation. Their victory or their defeat gets imputed upon all the people. That's what's actually happening here. And it's very important for the story that you catch it. So, verse 11, when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When Saul the king that they had chosen, who represented all of their ideals and all the people, heard this, they were afraid. No difference between Saul and the rest of the armies. Israel's man wants nothing to do with Goliath. And to get a sense of just how foreboding this whole thing was, just skip forward for just a second. We won't do this again in the story, but just for a second to verse 16 because the writer gives us a little little nugget of information in verse 16 that that fits the story right here. It says in in verse 16 that for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. For 40 days, twice a day, Goliath has been coming out and addressing the armies of Israel, calling for them to choose for themselves a man who will come and fight him. He's been laying this challenge down twice a day for 40 days. Now, as the writer writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is something that is going to be going off, bells going off in the mind of those who would hear this originally, in the mind of those who would read this for centuries to come. There's a story pop into your mind when you begin to hear what's going on here. For 40 days. Well, take some time this week and go back and read Numbers chapter 13. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses sent 12 spies to the edge of what would be the promised land to scout out the land and bring back a report. 
If you know the story, you might remember. They came back and they said, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's amazing. But 10 of them came back and said, but there'd be giants in that land. Big people who I don't think we can defeat. In fact, their report was this. It was there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed that way to them. Ten of them came back and said, there's a big giant in there, and we can't do anything about it. Only two came back and said, the Lord will give us this land. Remember, it was Joshua and Caleb. But the people of Israel, they, they took the negative report, and they feared the giants, and they wouldn't go forward. And so in judgment upon their lack of faith, God said this generation was going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until they had all died. They wouldn't be allowed to enter the land of his promise. Now, for 40 days straight, another giant has been standing in the middle of the land that God has given his people. And all of his people are afraid. This giant the writer tells us, is from Gath. That only becomes important when you hear Numbers 13 in the background when you go through the story because later on, as Joshua would lead the armies of Israel into the promised land to kick out all of the inhabitants of the land to do battle with them and defeat them and take the land that God had given them, Joshua will lead the Israelites in victory over the Anakim, the descendants of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, the giants that they saw in the land. And if you go back and read the battle, when Joshua led the armies against Anakim, they fled from Anakim to Gath. The descendants of the Nephilim, the giants in the land, who had scared Israel generations before, who they were afraid to go up against, are the ancestors to Goliath. And so here, another giant is standing in the land that God's given his people. And again, the people are afraid. What's going to happen? Well, if it was a story this is, or a TV show, this is where you'd cut to a commercial. And the last thing you'd see is King Saul, the, the chosen one, with all of his advisors back in their tents, all the men of Israel, back in their tents, pretending to do anything but make eye contact with this Philistine across the valley. You see, there's zero courage in the camp of the Israelites. And it's important to understand as you go through the story, courage is something that isn't simply a virtue found when there is physical danger on the line, where there's a great act of physical prowess that's required. Courage is simply being able to do the right thing regardless of the outcome. That's what courage really is. There are stories, you can read about them all the time, of, of men and women in the, in the armed forces who go and do tremendously courageous things on the field of battle, medals of valor galore who come home and yet don't have the courage in their home, don't have the courage in their personal lives to own their own weaknesses, to own their own shortcomings, to, to serve those that God has given them in their home. Courage isn't just about these great physical acts of valor. Courage is simply about being able to do the right thing, regardless of the circumstances. The threat that God's people were fa was facing was real. It was very present. And yet there was no courage in the camp. 
no willingness to do the right thing regardless of the stakes. But the story isn't over, right? Commercial breaks only last for like two and a half minutes. So coming back from commercial, you find in verse 12 that the scenery has changed. We've been out on the field of battle for the first part. Now when we come back from commercial, we're going to be in a different field. We're going to be in the fields of Jesse's pasture. Verse 12, David was the son of an Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. Now, we're familiar with this info. If you've been with us at all, we met Jesse and his sons just a week ago when we began to learn about David. The next few verses just name the sons of Jesse, with David being the youngest in verse 14. Here's what's important about this little piece, though. It says down in verse 14, the three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. All right? So David's brothers, all the ones that Jesse brought in front of Samuel, thinking these are the ones that mattered, all of them are now gone into the armies and are out there on the front lines with Saul. David has stayed home. He's continued to tend to the flocks. And so in verse 17, Jesse says to David, his son, Take for your brothers an epaph of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the, camp, to, the, to the camp to your brothers. And also take ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now, there, there, it's meant here, it's a very ordinary story, and the ordinariness plays a role here because it, it plays a role in understanding the ordinariness of David and the man that God would choose. But it's a very ordinary, very human thing here. It's a parent whose children are off at war, who desires to get a message of his love and concern for them to them. And it would have been very normal in those days to send a gift to their commander. So that's what's happening. There's an ordinary act of love and concern from a, a parent to a child. And I love the little phrase at the bottom, bring some token from them for me. And just let me know they're all right. Bring something back to just stabilize my worry. Even It's very human. It's very real. Now in verse 19, the writer tells us that Saul and, and they and all the men of Israel, they being Jesse's sons, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And that's a generous statement. They're not actually fighting with the Philistines at this point. We know what they're doing. They're sitting back in their camp scared to actually go into battle with a Philistine. But verse 20, David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep of the keeper and he took the provisions and he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. Now, read it like a human. We say that around here all the time. Most scholars say the distance between Bethlehem and the valley of Elah is somewhere around 12 to 15 miles so David wakes up early in the morning with the provisions already set, probably on a donkey of some nature to go with him, and he does a half marathon first thing in the morning. This entire story occurs in a single day. He does a half marathon first thing in the morning, gets to the encampment in time to hear the war cry go out. I don't know how fast he did that 12 to 15 miles, but it's pretty impressive because in a time when you didn't have night vision goggles, evenings were not the preferred time to do the raids. I don't know how fast he did it. It seemed like it was pretty quick. 
But verse 21 says, Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle. The war cry went out, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks, and he greeted his brothers. There's something very important happening right here. Just a picture, but it's very important. David has taken the gifts that his father sent, and he's left them with a keeper of the bags. He took the sheep that he was responsible for and left them with a keeper. In a very real way, from this point forward, David is setting aside his old responsibilities. And he's moving forward now into responsibilities that the Lord is going to unfold before him until the day comes when he is actually appointed king of Israel. But I told the first service, and again, this is just me. This is just conjecture, so don't, don't quote this as, as Scripture. But I just wonder, in, in the beauty of the writing, if the Holy Spirit inspired the writer of 1 Samuel to put this little detail in here of David leaving the provisions his father sent with the keeper of the bags before he goes out to the front lines. Why do I care about that? Well, if you remember when we first met Saul, the one who was head and shoulders above everyone else, the one everybody said, obviously, this is the one to represent us. We found him hiding amongst the bags. But here's David, the one that God's chosen, leaving his responsibilities here with the keeper of the bags as he goes out to the front lines. It's an interesting juxtaposition between what we're going to see between David and Saul, and maybe it meant nothing, but I love to think about it. Was that just a little thing, a little Easter egg, I guess they say today, the Holy Spirit put in there? I don't know. He'll correct me in eternity. I don't know. Verse 23, as David began to talk with them, he greeted his brothers and all the men around him, began to talk with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words as before. He's just repeating himself again, right? He's been doing it twice a day for 40 days. Nothing new in his information. The only new thing here is that this time, David hears him. And that day, no one cared that David heard him. It didn't matter that David was standing right there hearing this man come out and say what he's been saying for 40 days. None of the other men of the army cared that David heard. But the fact that David heard it this time is going to change the entire future of the nation of Israel. Verse 24 says, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him and were very much afraid. They saw him again. But this time, as they have seen him for 40 straight days, they see him only as man sees. They see the armor, they see the size, they see the spear. They see him as man sees and they flee. And considering what we've already learned so far in the story, between the difference between seeing the way that man sees and seeing the way that God sees, you've got to wonder, what would Goliath look like in the eyes of someone who sees as God sees? How does God see Goliath? You don't have to wait very long to find out the answer to that. Verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So if you've been wondering at all in the story what Saul has been doing for 40 days, 
what Israel's chosen man has been doing this entire time, here's what he's been doing. He's been trying to devise a particular strategy that would entice another warrior in the army to go out into the valley and to face this Philistine that he doesn't want to face. And here's his strategy. If he can go out there and defeat this Philistine, I'll make him really rich. He'll get great wealth. I'll give him my daughter. He gets a wife. I'll make his entire family free in Israel. His entire family will never have to pay taxes again. For 40 days, Saul's been trying to devise a way to get somebody to get out in that valley and do battle with this Philistine. And David, verse 26, said to all the men who stood by him, all these soldiers, what, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Did I I hear this right? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, these are the first recorded words of David in all of Scripture. And if you've caught it so far in 1 Samuel, this is the first time David has spoken. And when he speaks, and it's recorded here for us, we hear David trying to clarify the the rumor that he's heard. Is this really the strategy? Is this what the king is going to do? And he's not just trying to clarify what he's heard. He then begins to defy the arrogance of the Philistine. You see, there's been no mention of God so far in this story. And it's here that David even dares begin to ask, doesn't? Belonging to the living God make any difference at all in this? Who is this Philistine, this worshiper of false gods, to defy the armies of the living God? Those who are of the living God. Who is he? Israel has been tormented for 40 days by the mockery and defiance, and David's literally casting it aside. God is the living God, brothers. We really belong to Him. If we really belong to Him, then we should trust Him in all things. This guy... He's an idolater and a blasphemer. He's not even worthy of all the fear that you're giving him. Shouldn't the living God make a difference in this whole thing? You see, it's here in the the first words of David that we have recorded in the scriptures and in the story that you and I are beginning to get a clearer sense of the true nature of the battle that's going to take place. It's more than just a battle between a really tall man and an Israelite. The battle is actually occurring on a much grander scale. David keeps going around from group to group and soldier to soldier around the area, asking the same questions. Is is this really how we're going to approach this? Are we really going to let this guy defy the armies of the living God? And the writer says the only answer he got back to his questions was an answer to the first one. So shall it be done to a man who kills him. 
no one responds to his statement about allowing this Philistine to reproach the name of the living God. But people were listening. Verse 28, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Oh, man. Siblings and family, can they can put the knife between the shoulders like few other, can't they? So dismissive. Listen to this. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you've come down here to see the battle. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? What have I done? Don't forget Eliab is the one that made Samuel's heart skip a beat at first. When God sent Samuel to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, it was Eliab that Jesse brought out first, and Samuel thought to himself, ha ha, this is surely the one. He's the big one. He's the handsome one. He's the tall one. This is the one that God's got in mind, right? And it's the same one who's been there with the rest of the armies of Israel for 40 days in fear, not being willing to go out here. Verse 30 says, David turned away from his brother towards others and began to speak in the same way. And the people answered him the same way as before. But when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul. And Saul sent for him. Oh man, that, that buzz got around, right? And David said to Saul, verse 32, let no man's heart fail because of him. That sounds great, right? But he's talking to someone who's been too afraid to go out and fight. Let no one's heart fail him because of that uncircumcised Philistine, including you, Saul. Here's the deal. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And so the overlooked, dismissed, the youngest, ruddy one of Jesse is going out to face the giant in the place of the tall, appointed man of Israel's own choosing. He has been anointed king. And here in verse 32, he is literally asking to be appointed as Israel's champion, their representative, the man to go between the two lines. So in verse 33, Saul says to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you're but a youth. He's been a man of war from his youth. He's seen David the same way everybody else has seen him. But David said to Saul, verse 34, I love this. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father and when there came a lion, a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him. I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard. I struck him and I killed him. Your servant is struck down with lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. You'd be ready to fight now too, wouldn't you, if you heard that? I've been in a lot of pregame speeches in my life. This is one of the best ones. All you see is Thanos, Saul. Gigantic, unbeatable fear. But in the eyes of the living God, he's nothing but a mere grasshopper. I imagine there was a bit of silence at that point in the conversation. 
And I only say that because verse 37 starts this way. And then David said, the Lord, Yahweh. He uses his covenant personal name, Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who has committed himself to us, that we have been made his people, the one of steadfast love and faithfulness, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Listen, Saul, God has delivered me from beasts before. What makes this beast out there any different? You see, Israel's fear, their lack of courage, is just a reflection of their own failure to know, to trust, and to enjoy the steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. David isn't just some guy with little man syndrome chosen for a fight with Goliath. He doesn't think he's the superior fighter, but he's asking to be put in the game to be the representative, to be the man between the lines because his confidence isn't in himself. His confidence is in the living God. It's entirely different. And so Saul looks at him, and I don't know how long it took. Maybe he had a moment of deliberation. I I don't know. Saul says to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And so the fight is going to be on. The whole thing is built to a breaking point. But here's the thing that we need to do for just a minute at this point. We've got to pause because we've got to remind ourselves as we go through the story that the battle that is about to take place, it didn't start back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Philistines drew up against the Israelites, conquered them, and stole the ark. That's not when this whole thing started. It actually started back in the Garden of Eden. You see, the battle started when the serpent made his approach. I imagine, as the scripture said at that time, he was more beautiful than anything. I imagine just the scales glistening in the sun. He whispered his slanderous words about God in Eve's ear. And he sought to undo all that God had woven together in glory and creation. And you know the story. Adam and Eve fell for the lies. And we know that part of God's judgment and curse upon the serpent was that from that day forward he would be cast down on his belly and he would eat dust for the rest of his life. But God promised in that moment that a day was going to come when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And from that point forward, every generation has been waiting for that day. Now, I told you to make a note back when we talked about how the writer described Goliath because it was very important. This is where the description And all the detail of Goliath really begins to come into play. See, all that bronze armor that the writer described back there at the beginning of the story, you've got to realize that in Hebrew, the word for bronze sounds almost exactly like the Hebrew word for serpent. The two sound almost exactly alike. In fact, back in Numbers chapter 21, when God's people were grumbling about God's providing for them, his provisions for them in the wilderness after they failed to trust him to go into the land and they had to walk through the wilderness and they were complaining. One of God's acts of judgment on their sin was to send poisonous snakes amongst them. They began to get bitten. And in an act of mercy, if you know the story, God told Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up. The emblem of their judgment became the object they would fix their eyes on and trust in God and it would become the object of his mercy. Because when they looked upon that serpent when they had gotten bit, God would heal them. Bronze serpent sounded exactly alike. 
When you go and you read 1 Samuel chapter 4, bronze sounds just like serpent. And when he writes this story and says that he had this 125-pound coat of mail on him, everywhere in the Old Testament, in the first five books of the Bible and the Torah, where that word that we translate for the coat of mail is used in the first five books, it's always translated scales. Like the scales on a fish or the scales on a serpent. To the painful detail used to describe Goliath here in the story would have been heard by the original hearers and readers as Goliath being described as a bronze serpent standing in the valley defying God. Just as the serpent has stood to defy God ever since the garden. There in the valley of Elah is the serpent blaspheming the armies of the living God. And there in the valley, just like the Israelites were not meant to fear the giants before, and they were judged and had to spend 40 years wandering in their wilderness for their lack of confidence in God and his faithfulness. Here again, Israel is now in their land and a giant is standing right in the middle of it. And they're afraid again. This battle is ultimately about who rules the heavens and the earth. The serpent or Yahweh. That's what's going on here. And in verse 38, you see how it begins to unfold. It goes downhill fast here. Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, but he hadn't tested them. So David said to Saul, I can't go with these for I've not tested them. So David put them off. See, Saul tries to dress David up like Goliath. Same bronze scales tries to put on him the armor of the serpent. We see in this that Saul has become a king just like all the other nations and tries to send David out into battle with the power and the confidence and the same things that Goliath is standing out there with. It's a whole other sermon. It's probably a whole other series of sermons. There's so many layers there. But David the one of God's choosing. He's not going to go out into battle with the trappings of the king. He's not going to go out into battle with his confidence being placed in the things that the world put their confidence in. In fact, the writer says he put off everything that people were telling him to put on that he needed in order to go out and fight. And he did this, he said, so that it would be very clear that all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the victory didn't belong to him, but it belonged to the Lord, the living God. You keep reading verse 40. He takes his staff in his hand. He chews five smooth stones from a brook, put him in his pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. No bronze scales for David. Just a stick and some stones created by the living God himself. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He thought the Israelites were taking him for a fool. They weren't taking him seriously enough, sending this little boy out. And David's just going out to fight another beast. And the Philistine said to David, come to me, and I'm going to give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David, he's no slouch in the trash talk either. 
You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I'm going to give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give, he will give you into our hand. Why, Goliath? Because in a matter of minutes, everybody's going to know. There is a God who is above all, who will not be defied by anyone. And he is going to demonstrate his glory as he rains down judgment on you. And this battle is his. It's not mine. There's no room to glorify David in this entire story. He doesn't want it. He rightly wants the glory belong to the one and only true and living God. And all of those verses build up to this, the part everybody's familiar with. The Philistine arose and he came and he drew near to meet David. And David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him. And David put his hand in his bag. He took out a stone. He slung it and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. It's exactly what he said, right? The Lord is going to save without sword or spear. And do you know what else is going off in the minds of those who would hear the story? Originally when it was written? Leviticus chapter 24. Go read it at some point this week. God had been very clear in his word already. There was a particular judgment due those who blasphemed against him. You know what it was? Stoning. The serpent has been standing in the valley, blaspheming the living God. And the serpent is put to death by stoning, just as the law of God said it should be. And there is the serpent warrior in the valley of death, face down, eating dust. Verse 51, David ran and stood over the Philistine, took the Philistine's sword, drew it out of his sheath, killed him and cut off his head with it. Sound like another story? Kinda. First Samuel chapter 5. We've mentioned it already. The Philistines go into battle with the Israelites, defeat the Israelites, take the Ark of the Covenant into their own possession, put it in the temple with their god Dagon. You remember the story now? The Ark of the Covenant in the temple right next to Dagon. The next morning they come in, what happened? The God of the Philistines is face down on the threshold next to the Ark of the Covenant. That's weird. They stand it back up. They come back in the next day. What happened? He's down one more time. Except this time, his head's cut off. The God of the Philistines face down on the threshold before the presence of the holy God, head cut off. False gods, idols, struck down before the supremacy and holiness of God. And here, the Philistines' representative champion, the bronze serpent in his scales, struck down and decapitated before the servant of the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so rightly, when the Philistines saw all this, they fled, and the men of Israel, they rose with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, that's Goliath's hometown, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, plundered the camp. David took the head of the Philistines, brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The Israelites got to enjoy the victory as though they had been the ones who defeated the giant. It's a great story. It's a crazy day. 
One man stands between and wins a battle from which everyone profits. David won the battle and all of Israel is saved. David's victory against Goliath is imputed and reckoned to all of Israel. Now this is where you have to see, friends, that the closer we read the story and the more honest we are with ourselves, the more we have to admit that as we read it, we start off in the story a whole lot more like Saul and Israel than we want to admit. If someone doesn't come and save us from our own cowardice, it's over. And I want you to note as you go back through the story, friends, God did not send his people on that day in the valley an example for them to follow. He didn't send a man who would inspire them to think differently about their scenario and encourage them to pick up their swords and run out into the valley and go and face the Philistines together. He didn't send an example for all of the armies to look at and go, I need to go be like him. He sent a representative in their place. He sent a substitute in their place. And on that day in the valley of death, God saved his people through a representative. And his victory was imputed to the rest of God's people. God's Savior on that day was his representative. Not an example, not an inspiration, but a substitute. It was a very real day in history. It was a very real battle. There are two very real men And God's people were saved through the victory of God's champion. But the more you let the story unfold, the more you realize it's not really about David and Goliath or even David's faith at all. It's ultimately a story that points us to Jesus. It's a story that points us to the fact that, yes, in that valley of death there in Elah, we have a foreshadowing of the victory of Jesus over the serpent, over Satan's sin and death the long-awaited promised seed that was going to come, who would indeed once and for all crush the head of the serpent. And when he came, he came in the eyes of man as nothing, as weak as the world would see him. His own brothers, his own family dismissed him and doubted him. But it's through that weakness that God would save his people. It would be his own son that would step out into the ultimate valley where he would once and for all conquer the serpent by being crucified on a cross. On that cross, the scriptures say, scriptures tell us just outside of Jerusalem, at a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, Jesus would be made sin in our place and put to death because of it. And let me just say this. Again, this is just me. But does Golgotha sound like anything else in the story we've read today? Does it sound at all like Goliath or Gath? I don't know if the etymology of Golgotha comes from Goliath or Gath, but it's interesting. I don't know if you think anything at all about that last little bit of the story where David cuts off Goliath's head and takes it to Jerusalem, but you should know that in that day, Jerusalem was not David's capital. Jerusalem was an occupied city. It was occupied by the enemies of God's people. David takes that giant's head, takes that Philistine's head to the edges of Jerusalem. Most likely in those days, he would have put it up on a pole. And he would have been saying to all of those who were occupying that land, the victory has been won. And so I wonder, as the story begins to unfold, that when we get to Jesus' day, and the place that he is crucified on becomes known as the place of the skull, Golgotha, I wonder if it's because 
of what happened on that day in the valley. Not so much because it is formed and looks like a skull. But maybe it was there where David lifted up the head of Goliath in victory that God would secure through his son the victory for his people as his son would be lifted up on the cross, his hands and his feet pierced, where he would crush the head of the serpent quite literally by becoming the bronze serpent. By becoming sin, Paul said. By having our sins placed on him and lifted up so that all who would look upon him in faith and believe would be saved. John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, I love the story, but the story is not. If you can be courageous like David, then things will go well. Then you'll know God's blessing. No, the story is ultimately a forward pointing to Jesus who came and was perfectly courageous in your place, who was courageous for you when you're not, so that when you look up upon him and believe in him, when you receive him as king, God imputes to you his victory over Satan's sin and death and treats you as though you've been courageous in him. It's not about following David our example. God didn't give the Israelites an example to follow. He's not our example to follow. It's a story that's meant to focus our hearts and lift our eyes to trusting Jesus as our Savior, our substitute, which frees us because our hope doesn't have to be in our ability to emulate the example. Only Jesus has been the truly perfect, truly courageous one. We are faithful and courageous in him, which means our courage in this life, our ability at any time to do the right thing regardless of the consequences. Our courage is simply fruit that comes from something else. It's a derivative courage. It comes from the growing confidence and faith and hope we have in the steadfast love and faithfulness of the living God that he continues to work in us by the very same spirit that he worked in David and in Christ. And so that now, as we get to the end of the story, because of his victory, you and I, as his people, get to fight our enemies of sin and temptation from the place of Jesus' victory. Just as Israel got to go out and enjoy the spoils of their representative's victory and go and enjoy the victory that God had worked on their behalf and given them through David, we get to do the same thing. We get to face sin and temptation now from the place of victory because God's representative in our place has conquered sin and death. And the power of sin holds us no longer. Friends, in those moments, you are not the weak one in the battle. In him you are strong. Don't let the serpent convince you otherwise. He's a defeated foe. Christ Jesus has conquered sin. As our representative, his victory has been given to us. And now you and I, as his people, are free to run and enjoy that victory. It's a great story. It's an amazing day. It is a deep and abiding grace. As we close this morning, listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews. He says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look what he says. 
looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter, the champion of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Let me pray for us this morning, friends. Father, we thank you for the victory that you won through your Son and by your grace and faith in him, you give us the spoils of. Lord, help us this morning to see your kindness and your grace to us here in 2020 that you have shown us through the victory, the conquest of your Son over Satan's sin and death. God, let us be a people who see him lifted high, who believe in him, who rest our hope and our faith in him, and who get to live our lives here on this earth until you take us home enjoying the spoils of his victory. Lord, we ask this morning that you would do that miracle in our hearts by your spirit in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.